Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One, a leadership dialogue on energy, economy, and the environment. I'm Greg Dalton, the founder of Climate One. The World Bank was founded after World War II to lift the poorest people out of poverty. Today, the World Bank has a new problem, a new challenge, uh, raising income and reducing carbon pollution, or in other words, decoupling economic growth from the emission of greenhouse gases. Here today to discuss the World Bank and how it's uh, helping poor people around the world in the era of climate change is Kathy Sierra, Vice President for Sustainable Development of the World Bank Group. We also have with us Avais Khan, who's a lead in the clean tech venture capital practice at KPMG. So please give them a warm Commonwealth Club welcome. Kathy, welcome to the Commonwealth Thank Club. Thank you very much. Uh, so let's talk about what you're doing, what the World Bank is doing now that it has this new, I don't know if it's equal or dual mandate of helping poor people while also tackling climate change and raising incomes and reducing carbon. Thanks. Thanks, Greg. And first, thank you for having me here in Climate One. This is a great audience and a great opportunity to be in California. I want to thank the Nature Conservancy for also hosting me because I think it's really important for us to think about the dual challenges. You've got people living in poverty, 1.6 billion people without um, access to modern energy. The role of the World Bank is to help countries grow, help get people out of poverty. But we also know that the climate is changing, and uh, the poorest of those, those countries um, are going to be affected the most. So we have to tackle both of them together. It's not easy. It's going to require finance. It's going to require technology. It's going to require really a new way of thinking about development. But that's what we're trying to achieve. And how has the current financial situation, the financial crisis, uh, made this, affected this? Has it made it harder? Well, I think uh, let's, uh, we have to be honest. Um, it is harder because there's less capital out there to finance many of the kinds of programs that are going to be needed, whether they're in the renewable sector, whether it's in energy efficiency. Many of the countries we work in are riskier, and so capital has, has left at least for the moment. What we're trying to do at the bank is to actually act in a counter-cyclical fashion. We've increased quite dramatically our investment over this last year, doubling our work, doubling our infrastructure portfolio. But we're trying to do that and make it as green as possible. We believe, like many of the, the packages, stimulus packages in the United States, China, other places, that um, if you actually try to do some counter-cyclical activity, but you try to focus it on green investment, you can have a dual objective of getting the economy back on track and meeting some of our climate um, objectives as, as well. Avais Khan with KPMG, uh, the numbers we're looking at here for getting enough capital to do these sorts of things, we know that uh, governments and multilateral institutions can't do it alone. Where do you see the private sector and private capital helping uh, to do some of the things or, or co connect with what the World Bank is doing? Sure. So, um, first of all, thank you for the invitation to come speak here. Um, I'll address your question in, in, in two kind of two ways. Uh, Number one is we look at a lot of cleaner, newer technologies and see how we can commercialize them in, in not only just here, but in a lot of developing countries. Uh, that's where a lot of the multilateral uh, banks, such as the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, uh, all of these banks come in. I personally have been spending a lot of my time, time in, in South Asia, um, and I can, I can probably speak a bit to that or, of how mm -hmm. we are going and, and working with the governments in South Asia to make sure that these newer technologies and these newer projects um, get commercialized with the current recession or the, with the current lack of capital available. Um, I mean, as, as you know, South, South Asia is a home to almost 1.5 billion people right now. By the year 2020, it's supposed to grow to almost 2.2 billion. Um, and in another uh, 20 to 30 years, five of the world's largest mega cities will actually be, will be in Asia. Uh, with Mumbai, Karachi, Calcutta, Dhaka. So I spend a lot of my time in, in those regions, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. Um, what, what we find out is that the World Bank and, and other banks like the Asian Development is actually more active uh, than we actually like to think in Silicon Valley. I mean, here we, we usually look at, at technologies which, which uh, we can take to commercialization, but in order to work 
in those countries, you kind of have to work with the governments and the multilateral banks who can finance based on the sovereign guarantees that, that the governments can issue. And, and, and I'll get, I can get into that much more detail. Later. We'll circle back on that. I mean, Kathy, is there a, a particular project, or if you were to say uh, so far, and I realize these are early days, you know, is there a particular accomplishment or achievement that you can point to that the World Bank uh, can, can say is a model of success? You know, what we're trying to do is work on two different angles. One is on getting the knowledge there. And so we're working a lot of partnerships, doing some um, some pretty ground-breaking studies, I believe, in terms of what's the cost of adaptation. How do you actually move to a low-carbon economy? So we're working, for example, with India, um, with China, with Brazil, Mexico, South Africa, helping them think through in their growth path what are the changes they're going to need to do if they want to have better energy efficiency, if they want to have a more climate-resilient um, economy. So that's one um, set of actions which are very much country-led, but we're trying to bring the analytics, trying to bring best practices to them. But the other thing is the finance. And, and we are a bank, and what we are good at is trying to bring together different financial flows. So we know that many of the technologies are going to cost more than conventional energy, for example. Many of the urban transport solutions are going to be expensive, at least in the initial capital cost. So let me give you an example for Mexico. Mexico is a very aggressive climate change um, uh, program that they put in place. We're backing that up with $500 million of regular lending to help them be able to pursue um, these activities. We're also putting together a package of donor funds, which are at very, very um, attractive, almost grant-like rates, to buy down some of the different costs. So one of the projects we're working with is to see can we put in place rapid bus transport, um, get cars off the roads in five of the, of the major cities of, of Mexico, put in place the lowest um, uh, emissions bus systems there, and really transform the urban transport um, uh, environment in that country. And if we do it there, you can imagine other countries in Latin America using that as a bit of a beacon in seeing that those solutions might work for them as well. It's about transformation, financial packaging, finding the best solutions that work for the people of those countries. Is there a particular country, you, you mentioned that these are led by countries, is there a particular country that you think is, uh, embodies sort of the vision of a low-carbon growth future uh, other than Mexico? Well, Mexico's one. I'll give you another example, um, which is Turkey, which we're also working with. Turkey is very interested in meeting um, European standards as part of its, its move towards accession and to the European Union. And so there, they have set themselves very ambitious targets for energy efficiency, for introducing renewables into their program. Again, with the help of, of the bank and some of the donor funds, of which the United States is a participant, uh, we're financing major energy efficiency um, programs. We're going to be going into renewables. And the next thing we'll be thinking about with them is smart grids. Um, how do they really um, bring the best technology into play? It's going to take a technology uh, agreements. It's going to take um, good financing that brings down the cost, carbon finance, and the like. So packaging it together. Kathy Sierra is Vice President of Sustainable Development at the World Bank Group. Uh, this is Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, Avais Khan, she, Kathy mentioned buying down uh, technology. A lot of the technologies, as I imagine, that, that she's talking about come from the private sector, are funded by venture capitalists. Uh, what do you see as some of the most promising technologies there that have, uh, have relevance for what we're talking about? Yeah, so um, traditionally the, the, the value here has been very good in, in, in innovation, right? Um, some of the newer te clean tech technologies that are very applicable to the developing world are in the sectors such as waste to energy. So, um, um, and I'll give you an example. Um, most of uh, the countries in South Asia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, waste is, is a tremendous problem, it's distributed, it, it's not at a central place, and in order to harness that energy, you not only need cleaner technologies, but you need cost economical technologies. So what we are doing over there is to work with the World Bank uh, and some of the institutions under the World Bank to enable private financing um, to, to get into these projects. So um, just, just uh, for everybody's perspective, I mean, the World Bank group is basically five institutions, uh, and Kathy can probably do a much better job than I can uh, for this, but... Um, it's the two of the institutions, which is the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development and the International Development Agency, uh, 
um, are, are institutions that work with the governments and primarily under sovereign guarantees. There are two institutions, which is the uh, IFC and, and, the, and the MIGA, which are which actually do international finance corporation, international finance corporation and the multilateral investment guarantee agency. Uh, both of these institutions actually do fund private enterprises, small, uh, or they sometimes fund the intermediary bank institutions that can then lend, lend to private uh, enterprises. So, uh, and many people might not know this, but IFC itself has a, a grants program or a loan program which they finance. $2 million uh, to about $5 million of cleaner technologies. Um, uh, one company out here in the East Bay actually called MBA Polymers, which, which is doing uh, a lot of things in Asia for, with plastic recycling, was actually sell, um, was angel funded by the IFC. Um, then there's the first electric car in China was again angel funded by the IFC. So the so World Bank and the World Bank institutions are actually very interested and very active in financing the cleaner technologies. And I think that's, that's critical uh, to commercializing them in, in, in those regions. Do you think that they're the best people to make those bets? A lot of the discussion in Washington these days about government shouldn't pick winners. That's not what government does best. That's what the private sector should do. Do you think a, a large bureaucracy ought to be doing that? Well, I think that uh, as far as the innovation is concerned, I think the, 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 the venture capital world or the entrepreneurial world has been very good at that, right? But as far as commercializing the technologies, I think that's where the banks can play a very active role. Uh, and, and not only just um, from, from picking the technology, but actually helping partner with the local regions and the local bodies and local government. I mean, the World Bank group has a, has a very high persona and prestige when it comes to, to those regions. And I think that's where they can play a very active role in, in helping taking those technologies to those markets. Do you think, Kathy, do you think the bank should play more of a, a proactive, take more risk to get some of these technologies, particularly in countries where VCs like Avace are not going to go because they're not going to be able to get enough return? Uh, do you think the bank should? We are taking more risks. I mean, in the past, um, the bank took a, not a proactive stance with respect to technology transfer. We were all about what's the lowest cost, um, how do we make sure that these things are environmentally sustainable, socially sustainable, but we weren't kind of pushing the envelope. Um, with the climate change um, agenda coming forward, it's very clear that there has to be a transformation with respect to technologies. We're not good at picking winners, and so we, we try to, to stay away from that, at least on the public sector side. But what we try to do is to help countries and sectors and, and provinces really think through what are the, what's the array of opportunities out there. Um, how can you actually start thinking about blending different financing sources so they get more affordable? Um, can you take some more risks? Countries are actually open to taking more risks because they want to have a more diversified energy portfolio. Other countries say, you know, we see that there's a future out there that's going to be more carbon constrained. I want to get on this bandwagon now. But I'd like to make sure that the technology is going to be accessible, financing's there. Our private sector arm, um, as, as was discussed, is um, now also moving more into the space and taking some of those risks. But of course, not with a bureaucratic point in mind, but really with a private sector viewpoint and trying to partner with the right people. Okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, there was a, a group, the internal watchdog at the bank, the Independent Evaluation Group, uh, which is the internal uh, organ at, at the World Bank, noted in its environmental sustainability report last year that the World Bank has been a leader in calling for environmental sustainability but the institution has not been able to integrate environmental stewardship in, into its program. So, so um, how good are you doing in terms of integrating environment yeah. into, into uh, your development project? You know, we took a major um, uh, step a couple years ago um, because we felt that we weren't doing as good a job as we should have in integrating environment into our programs. And we actually merged our infrastructure practice uh, with the environment and social um, practice. I was the, the head of infrastructure. And so I had the challenge, along with my team, and, and um, very much with the backing of the president of the World Bank, to say it's going to be everybody's business. It's not, infrastructure people can't just think about um, building things, and environment people think about saving the earth. It's everybody's business. So the, the construction of our new um, framework on climate change very much has as, as its core that we need to integrate this from the world go, the get-go. The energy practice um, has been the first leaders in this. We're now moving into the transportation 
um, arena to make sure that's there. Water is going to be the next um, area. I think the, the water issue is going to be critical going forward, um, not just because of climate change, but because of broad scarcity and population growth in many of our countries. So it's my job, it's the job of, of all of us at the bank, is to make sure that the integration is not just do no harm, protect things, but it's actually help countries get on the right pathway. A lot of large corporations face the same challenge. They've had corporate responsibility offices that sit in a green box mm -hmm. and they do their job, but they're not part of the mainstream operation. So you used to run HR at the World Bank. What are you doing to try to get it down to the, to, you know, Walmart famously has a program to get every store clerk to kind of live their environmental uh, practices or in, in some fashion. What are you trying to, what are you doing to get it down into the, into the, the bowels of the organization? And, well, two things. I mean, we, we clearly, as many um, companies do, you have to make sure that you are, you're yourself are sustainable. So we decided to go carbon neutral as our corporate offices. This is not our projects, but the actual um, the operations of the organization. We made sure that we put in place a very strong energy efficiency um, program, and that energy that we could not reduce, um, we would only purchase from renewable sources. Did you, did you use offsets to go neutral? We offset only for our, our transport. Um, so all of our air transport, uh, we purchase offsets. Um, so this is part and parcel of what we do. But in terms of trying to change the mindsets of our, of our, our program officers, and particularly the leaders, we have a new program that uh, um, we are partnering with Cambridge University in England, and we're putting all of our managers through something called the Sustainable Development Leadership Program, really making sure that they understand whether they're an energy sector manager, there's somebody that's thinking about economic development, um, somebody that's thinking about fiscal reform, why the environment matters to them, why climate change matters to them. It's really transforming attitudes and is part and parcel of our mainstreaming activities. Kathy Sierra is Vice President of Sustainable Development at the World Bank. Uh, the World Bank loans uh, almost $100 million to a group in Brazil, the country's largest exporter of beef, and uh, cutting down uh, rainforests to create pasture lands for beef is one of the biggest sources of deforestation, therefore carbon emissions. Um, the World Bank's own internal watchdog group concluded the project was a, a risk from the environment, yet it went ahead. And, and maybe, can you, are you familiar with that project? It's a routine yeah. project. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah, you know, this is where, you know, we, we are always making judgments. Um, what's the without the bank scenario? So in this um, case, this was an IFC project, a private sector project. Uh, I think the, the IFC felt if we're in this project, we can help make this company um, more sustainable, make sure that there's actually sustainable uh, livestock practices in the country. There were a series of agreements, of standards that the company was going to have to meet. And in the event, um, that didn't happen, and so the IFC actually canceled that project recently. And the interesting footnote is that um, Greenpeace issued a, a report about uh, deforestation in the Amazon and the impact of, of cattle grazing on, on deforestation, a, a contributor to deforestation. And within a month, uh, Nike acknowledged, announced that they were going to require all of their leather suppliers to certify that this, the company selling leather to Nike, that it doesn't come from deforesting the, uh, the Amazon, which I thought was a pretty interesting example of an NGO uh, applying some pressure and a, and a corporation saying, look, we don't want to touch this because of our brand risk. So Avace, you know, uh, we've talked about technology. What other roles can co corporations play as, as advocates and, and really connecting uh, their brand to some of, the, some of these climate change issues? Well, I think corporations have a huge stake in not only from their internal practices, like Kathy talked about earlier, but but in terms of their brands uh, as they go into markets that that they're not familiar with. Uh, um, you mentioned Nike. Um, Nike, you know, used to buy at one point, 10, 15 years ago, a lot of the things from parts of the world where labor laws were not standard, right? And then we saw 10, 15 years later. And Nike pulled back from all of those practices too, and I think we're sort of seeing the same transition. And I think people in general in the world are, are getting conscious about uh, the environmental impact for the things that they're buying, uh, not just here in the West Coast, but I, I would actually say in the world in general. Um, so I think corporations are actually playing a very active role. I think there's a lot of work to do, but I think that uh, they, they have a major stake in, in fighting climate change. Kathy, do you see consumer pressure and citizen pressure uh, affecting the, the governments and companies that, that the World Bank works with? No, absolutely, and I think it's actually very healthy. Um, I think you're not going to get development right. Development is hard, 
there are many different people that are going to be winners and losers. There's people that don't have voice um, that perhaps um, are not heard. Uh, local um, civil society organizations can play a tremendous role in trying to amplify those voices. Um, watchdog groups can keep us all you know, focusing on the kind of outcomes um, that we need. It may not always be comfortable. It's not comfortable to get a report from our internal watchdog, our internal evaluation group, saying, gee, we don't think you're doing as a good job as you might. But that just kind of makes us redouble our efforts. So I think it's healthy. I think it's part of, of really um, getting to the development process in a way that's going to get the outcomes we need. Yeah, I was just going to add uh, something that I think we all have to remember that in order to eradicate poverty, um, the development needs come before the, the climate needs for many of the people that we are trying to address in, in, in those regions of the world. So I think that the, the, the development needs to happen, and the, uh, but it has to, be, it has to happen in, in, a, in, in a sustainable way. I think it's a very... It's a very thin balance for a lot of the people that we're trying to have an effect on in, that, in those regions that if you go to them and you tell them that you can't, uh, you can't have a certain kind of development if it doesn't sustain in a, in a, in a fashion, right? And, and I think that's, that's, that's what the, the whole debate is about, um, that we, are, we can't, in certain regions, we can't enforce or we can't tell the people that they can't get out of poverty just because we are trying to enforce climate change. Um, and I think there is a thin balance, and that's where the, the other organizations and, and NGOs and, and watchdogs come into play, and I think it's a very healthy balance. But I think that's something very key to remember. So it's, it's arrogant of us in the developed world to tell people that we created this carbon problem and now you can't have what we have because it'll... I mean, we, we've been... Ha that's, that's where... where the pushback, excuse me, that, that we, we get, um, you know, countries say, yes, we, we acknowledge it's a climate problem. Um, but the first responsibility is to those that, that, that cause the you problem. You created it. You fixed you. Yeah. Well, there's a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. and, and there's a very strong point because, again, um, picking up the, the development needs, if you think about it, I mentioned you've got 1.6 billion people don't have access to energy. So you are um, the president of a country that you've got four or 500 million people that don't have access to energy. Uh, you're, you cannot tell your citizens, say, so sorry, until we've got some innovation to make this carbon neutral. We're not prepared to get you out of poverty. We're not prepared to let you go to schools that have um, light bulbs in there. We're not prepared to have uh, uh, hospitals that have refrigeration. Of course, you have to, to attend to that. Our job is to both um, help countries get access to that through the private sector if, if necessary, but increasingly to help show different pathways. So that's why we think that you can actually do the two things together. Now, it's going to require knowledge, so partnerships are really important. It's going to require financing. So that's why having a well-articulated carbon market or some other form of flows of finance that will help bridge the gap in developing countries is so critical. And the third thing that countries are saying, we need that technology. We need to have technology partnerships and the like because we're moving. We're moving fast. We want to grow. But if you can show us the path, if you can help us get the technology, if you can help us finance it, why not? Of course we want to modernize. Of course we want an energy-efficient future. So let's try to do it together. One of the big obstacles in getting to developed countries is they have so much capital infrastructure in the fossil fuel economy. And some of the 1.6 billion, I guess if there is any bright side to mm -hmm. 1.6 billion people uh, without energy is that they don't have a lot of uh, uh, money sunk into dirty power plants, et cetera, is there a possibility that they can go straight to clean energy without going through a dirty phase, or is that just a fantasy? Well, you know, if you look at any of the projections of, of what's going to be needed to get to um, the, the kind of, of temperatures that we all hope to have, no more than two-degree um, increase in, in the global temperatures, they tell us that under every circumstances, you're going to have some investments still needed in fossil fuels. Um, you're going to see a lot of, of a reduction, hopefully, in energy through energy efficiency measures. So that's a very important piece, very important of the wedges. Um, renewables, um, other um, uh, hydropower and the like are, are going to be another important piece. Uh, uh, get natural gas is going to be important. And for a period, you're going to see coal um, continuing. So I think part of our collective job is to try to first accelerate um, the development of cleaner coal technologies, and in particular carbon capture and storage, to see whether that is actually going to be a viable solution. So partnering um, 
uh, in the first instance in the OECD countries where a lot of experiments are going, but trying to get that as quickly to developing countries. Uh, we, um, if uh, we're asked to, um, to try to support something in the fossil fuel area, we want to get the cleanest technology there um, in place and um, try to make sure at the minimum that uh, the opportunities for other kinds of, 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 um, of energy solutions are, are given at least fair airplay. Going yeah, I'll just uh, throw an anecdote. I do a lot of work in in Pakistan, and that's not an area where we, you know, hear a lot of good news from these days. Uh, but um, Pakistan has 186 billion tons of coal, uh, and um, and and that's all. It's it's a night. It's the ninth largest coal deposit in the world. Um, when I am having discussions with the government of Pakistan or the Alternative Energy Development Board. Uh, they are very favorable to using cleaner coal technologies um, as long as it is done in an economical fashion. Now, I think we are almost getting to a place, I am seeing technologies right now that we can use to commercialize in, a, in some sort of a coal economic, in, in a cost economical fashion. Uh, there's a company here in the U.S. which converts coal to natural gas. So we're, we're talking to that company. Uh, there is another cleaner coal company which which uh, which clears the contents, the sulfur contents, and some of the other bad contents of the coal, and, and then burns that. But but I, the point I want to make is that sometimes we 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 don't give enough credit to the governments of of the developing countries, but they actually are very interested in 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 in, in all the renewable sources if we can if we can do it in a cost economical fashion and help bring electricity to a lot of uh, the people, which, you know, Kathy was saying, 1.6 billion people in the world don't even have access. Let's stay on coal for a minute, because we do have questions from the audience. Uh, we're discussing uh, the World Bank and climate change at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, question from the audience is, is the World Bar Bank involved in carbon capture and sequestration? Can you talk about that? And, and let's, you know, is that real? Is that something you're investing in? Well, um, first of all, we're not investing in it um, at this point because it's very expensive, and most of the countries would not be prepared to borrow for it. You know? So they're lo they would be looking for some type of, of exchange with um, the developing world. Um, we are partnering with a variety of institutions, and, and of note, um, there's a new institution in Australia, which is a knowledge-based institution that's trying to build, bring together um, those countries that are, are trying to move this agenda forward and trying to see how we can um, link up some of our own programs through the Clean Technology Fund, which we manage, and others, to get countries ready to be able to invest in carbon capture and storage. If a country wanted to borrow from us, we'd be delighted to. But frankly, it's so expensive at this point, it would really require a heavy dose of, of grant-based finance, which we don't have available. How about cleaning existing or projected new uh, coal-fired power plants? Yeah. Um, we, we have a, a few things. Um, first, as part of our, our uh, new strategy on climate change and development, we've set the bar pretty high in terms of what we, do we need to see in terms of new generation um, or new activities. We would want to be able to assure ourselves and assure the country that there really is a compelling development need, um, uh, major power shortages, something that says you know there is a, a reason for action. Second, that there has been a really strong technical analysis, financial analysis, economic analysis of alternatives. Um, is there a hydro solution? Is there a renew another renewable solution? Um, can you actually meet this through energy efficiency um, rather than building um, new capacity? Um, third, um, that we've actually looked to see are there other financing flows that could buy down the cost to, to make some of those um, more accessible. Fourth, we would want to assure ourselves that irrespective of moving forward that we are working side by side on other solutions like renewables, energy efficiency programs. And finally, we'd want to say, are we using the best tech available technology going forward? So it's a pretty high bar. In the past, it would have been, is this project economically, financially feasible? So that would have been where we were. Fair to say you're funding less coal than before? Well, I, I think we are um, trying to move uh, upwards on the energy efficiency renewable um, place. We um, moved from about 28% of our portfolio on energy efficiency and renewables to 40-some percent last year. Our goal is 50%. The rest of it is not um, fossil fuels. A big chunk of the rest, almost 35%, is um, energy policy lending, transmission, distribution, 
about a third is fossil fuel, most of that is natural gas. Um, but I, I will also say that countries, because of the financial crisis, are seeing capital um, retreating from them, and so more countries that are coal-based are talking to us um, going forward. We're going to try to move them towards the cleaner solutions before we move into the coal-based ones. Kathy Sierra is Vice President of Sustainable Development at the World Bank. This, we're discussing climate change and the World Bank at Commonwealth Club Climate One. Uh, Aves, you mentioned uh, coal and, and Pakistan and gasification, and you mentioned a key phrase, which is, you know, it has to be economic, but the alternatives are not economic yet. And until they are, Pakistan and India and China are going to still keep using the cheap, dirty coal that's underneath their feet. Well, I, I think that relates to the point I was trying to make earlier. I mean, Kathy just mentioned there, there are areas in, in, in India, in Bangladesh, or in Pakistan where you have, in major cities, you have 12 to 14 hours of, of blackouts. When you, when you have half of the population of a country living in blackouts, I think the, the government would seek anything to actually provide energy needs to their people. And I think if the shortest way to do that is, is, to, is to do it through coal, I think that's what they would do. Uh, now, I think our job uh, as a Western world is to help them get to that point faster where they don't really have to do that. And I think from what I was mentioning earlier, they're very receptive to using new and renewable energy sources too. Um, you know, the, India has, a, has, I think, a wind potential of almost 50,000 megawatts. Pakistan, right on the coast of the Arabian Ocean, just the, that, you know, just a 50, 50 mile radius has a potential of 60,000 megawatts of wind. And, 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 a, and, a, and a private sector from Turkey is putting a large project uh, with the help of the IFC and the World Bank uh, of 250 megawatt wind power plant. Um, and I think that the, you can see the countries moving towards renewable sources, but I think when there's an immediate need um, to make sure that electricity goes even to the major cities, I think if the coal is the, is the option, that's what they're going to use. Avais Khan is the lead in the clean technology venture capital practice at KPMG. Uh, Kathy, you mentioned uh, hydro before, and let's talk about hydro. The bank pulled back from hydro after some bad experiences, and it sounds like hydro's back, or it may be back soon, in a, in a new fashion. You know, uh, we um, had traditionally had hydropower as a very important part of our portfolio. Um, until uh, the late 80s, early 90s, when um, we had some projects which, frankly, didn't meet to their objectives in terms of the social and environmental sustainability. So we pulled back from those projects and said, you know, we needed a bit of a cooling-off period. Um, we also and you didn't do the Three Gorges Dam, if no, I recall. No, we never did the Three okay. Gorges Dam, but these were, were other projects. And so we had a, a fairly lengthy period of time where um, uh, major dam projects, we still had some small facilities, run-of-the-river run facilities and the like in our portfolio, but um, we basically pulled away. Now, we felt that uh, that was a good thing in terms of it was time for us to pause, to reflect on, on what had gone well and what had not gone on so well, but it was also doing a disservice to um, countries which needed to rely on hydropower. And so we um, said it's really time for us to get back in, but get back in um, in a new way, get back in with a more progressive attitude towards getting benefits to people, um, building environmental values from the outset into the projects. We had the first major project was um, one called Namtum, which in Laos PDR, uh, which is under implementation right now. And so far, it, we um, believe that it is achieving um, both of its development goals, but also being done in an environmentally and socially sustainable way. The Africa continent is likely to come to us for a, a variety of, of power, um, hydropower projects. We think that we can attend to these in a responsible way. So I think you will be seeing more of that in our portfolio going forward. Large scale? Both large and small. Um, we aren't. Uh, we clearly have uh, different needs, and uh, we are attracted to both. And we're attracted to the small-scale run of the river. Many places, that is the appropriate solution. If it's going to be a large-scale um, program, we're trying to uh, do a few things in a different ways. Make sure that there's, you know, a major improvement, and actually in the environmental footprint through offset um, uh, reserves. That's what we did in Lao PDR. And also on the social side, where often things have, have, are, are more difficult, uh, a mistake that had been made in, in the past is that local people didn't get access to power. It was all shipped out to the cities. Um, now there's a very strong concerted effort to make sure there's benefit sharing um, from the outset so that both some of the, 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 the job creation, 
um, the local benefits to communities are there, and as a priority, that the, that local community um, is getting power. Uh, and the state of California actually excluded large-scale hydro as, as a renewable resource because they, I guess, there was one reason that uh, well, opponents of large-scale hydro mm -hmm. kind of blocked it. Uh, but the scientists tell us that snowpacks and, and rainfalls are going to be less predictable and be very different in the future. So that's got to pose some new risks for the hydro equation than than in the past, I would think. That's right. It is getting um, uh, more challenging, and I think that that it, not just in the developing world, I think in the world yeah. at large, um, the kinds of a risk analysis that one um, did uh, in the past. We knew what our 100-year flood looked like. We knew what our 500-year flood looked like. Um, the engineers had uh, their calculations that they made. Um, that's out, the, out, out now. Um, uh, and, and frankly, the engineers and the project planners are struggling um, to really understand what the dynamics are going to be, um, the flood for forecasting, the water forecasting, the like. So I think what's going to be in, and this is nascent, um, will be a different kind of project and program appraisal, one that is much more based on risks, that's looking at variety of scenarios, and making sure that whatever we do is robust under whatever we think might be the likely scenarios on the climate. Vaith, do you want to talk about hydro? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say that um, uh, micro-hydro has picked up a lot of attention in, in the developing world. Uh, I mean, I think um, government, of, government of Punjab in India recently did a study that just in Punjab, there's almost 2,000 megawatts of, of, of electricity that you can generate from just micro-hydro. And I, I see a World Bank doing a lot of things in the micro-hydros. Maybe you can touch on that yeah. a bit, too. No, absolutely. In fact, we, we um, actually look at, at hydro um, partly for some of the reasons that are the interests here in California or also in many countries. We are trying to make sure that we are looking for both kinds of solutions, and we're keeping as one of our targets um, the kind of small renewable energy, including small hydro, as part of, of, of where we're trying to move. Um, we, we will do, if we can do it responsibly and if it makes sense, um, the large hydro, but in many places it's going to be much more cost-effective and have a very smaller environmental and social um, footprint to do micro-hydro, and so we're very open to, to that, and hopefully that will be a bar big part of our portfolio. We're discussing the World Bank and economic development and climate change at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. A couple of questions from the audience about the built environment, which we know is a big part of uh, greenhouse gases and carbon emissions. One uh, asks, what organizations, uh, if the bank doing on uh, efficient housing and references uh, Architects for Humanity? Another asks uh, whether the, the World Bank gets into land use, uh, low-carbon building materials, carbon neutral, I think you mentioned carbon neutral transportation. Let's talk about the built environment. and. and sure. You know, if you look at, at what's happening in terms of population dynamics, uh, half of the world is now urbanized, and um, it's going to be ex accelerating the urbanization rates in developing countries at a very rapid pace. Most of the growth in urban areas is going to be in the, in the developing world, and interestingly, a lot of that in Africa. People don't think of Africa as an urban place, but more and more of Africa is urbanized. Um, we know that if uh, you lay down the infrastructure, it's going to be there at least 100 years. It's probably 100, 150 years. And so um, cities, uh, localities are making choices now that are going to be very durable. So um, we have, um, as part of the work that we're trying um, to bring knowledge and partnerships together, thinking about cities and climate change, thinking about um, bringing mayors together um, so they can start debating what the built environment may look like in the future. Now, there are, are trade-offs here. Um, many of the cities in developing countries um, happen to be on the coasts, and those cities are more vulnerable to the, the um, climate risks so um, uh, that would drive you to be have less decon less concentrated urban places. But if you want to have a more efficient city, you want a more concentrated city. You want one where people rely on public transportation, where you can um, uh, put in building standards that are more efficient, a more efficient energy system. And so those trade-offs between um, having a, a strong, um, environmentally friendly built environment, but also mitigating um, risks and disasters is one that we're, we're looking at. A number of, of countries have come to us. China, for example, is asking us to partner on their eco-cities um, program. They want us to put together a few really model cities that are using all of the, the kinds of, of newest practices that we're seeing in California, that we're seeing in other parts of, of Europe and the like, Barcelona, um, to help them think through what would that city look like. 
as to test some of the things, find out their social acceptability, will they work, what are the institutional practices that need to be put into place. And I think that kind of energy, the enthusiasm that I'm seeing is very positive. Yeah, um, I, I'm glad somebody asked uh, building materials or, or the built environment because if you look at the numbers, I mean, we hear a lot of talk about um, the emissions and um, eight to nine percent or somewhere about 10 percent comes from the transportation sector. But it's almost about 40 to 42 percent is, is the number that comes from the built environment. And, and that's, that includes the materials and that includes the operations. So when I'm talking about materials, it, it includes drywall, it includes uh, anything that basically goes in, 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 in putting a building up. And we're not going to have a significant impact on climate change unless we address the built environment. Um, they, you know, the, just, just an example, the, the process of making drywall um, hasn't changed since 1917. I mean, that's a, like a 100-year-old process, which is extremely energy-intensive. And there are companies there now which have come up with the new, new ways of making, making building materials. I mean, cement itself is about 8% of the worldwide carbon emissions. Uh, that's, that's a huge number. So, so I think that in order to address the global emissions problem, the built environment has to be uh, a strategic, has to be of strategic importance. And, and it's very surprising to see that, you know, we don't, we don't really hear Middle East actually doing a lot of things on, on the greener side. But uh, places like Abu Dhabi and Dubai, where most of the construction besides China is happening for the next, you know, 10, 15 years or so, uh, the world's first green city uh, is actually going to be in Abu Dhabi. Mazdar? Or? No, Mazdar. Mm -hmm. uh, and they are partnering with companies here in this valley and the west, which can um, enable green, the, the green built environment. Uh, so, so there is a lot of activity in, in, the, in the green building space, and I think it's very crucial to the entire emissions problem. Aves Khan, uh, there's another question for you from the audience, or for either of you. Uh, is there a greater role for Silicon Valley in developing clean energy solutions for the developing world? To what extent do private sector investors understand the opportunity? Well, I, I, I think we are now at a point that, that the, the, the investors um, in general understand the opportunity very well. I mean, if you look at the, the, the two prime sectors for investment for the last 30 years, that was information technology and biotech. But if you look at the numbers now, clean technology is, is almost uh, up there somewhere along those numbers too. The area has, has gained a lot of interest in the last four to five years. And the investors understand that these are, I mean, in the information technology, we usually talk about a billion-dollar market. In the energy world, we're, we're talking about about a $6 trillion market, right? So when you, when you, when you give those kind of numbers, uh, that would interest anybody. Yeah. VCs' eyes light up and they, yeah. 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 And uh, so, so I think that there is significant interest. Uh, I think one thing to remember, though, is that the energy ecosystem is, is very different than, than the information technology world. You have to work with, with, uh, with policymakers. You have to work with governments. You, we have to work with, uh, with foreign governments. And, and, and those are some of the factors that, that, that uh, frankly, we were not used to dealing with in, in Silicon Valley. And I think that, 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 that is uh, a bit of learning as we go along. You mean yeah. uh, two college students in their dorm wearing flip-flops can't create the next new uh, energy? Uh, well, I think they can create they the can. next material. <laughs> I think they can definitely create the next material, the next building material in their lab. Uh, but in order to commercialize it, they're going to have to influence all the people in, that, in, that, in the value chain. Kathy? I, I think just I, I would uh, agree, but also point out that you've also got centers of innovation in the developing world as well. And so sometimes people see the developing world as sort of resisting the change, but at the same time when you go and you speak to um, entrepreneurs in India, when you um, see the Chinese really trying to get ahead of the curve in terms of, of clean technologies and, and try to really push that forward, um, there's a lot of, of activity and a lot of energy going, going into that, pardon the pun. And uh, so it tells me that there's going to be probably a need for more connectivity. Um, more sharing, more financial products that are going to be linking um, these different entrepreneurs. Yes, we need the enabling environment, but we also need the innovation. And I think um, some of the best agriculture research, for example, is coming from universities in India. 
uh, India is a, is a large market for the pesticides and, and agriculture, and and you see like uh, really hardcore genomic research, which used to, which is still continuing in San Diego. It, uh, India has large bioengineering centers where, where where very good research is coming, and companies are trying to commercialize to other parts of the world too. For all the talk about electric cars in Silicon Valley, uh, the only electric car I've ever ridden in was a Riva. Uh, in in Delhi, which actually is exported, it's an Indian electric all electric car uh, that's exported to Europe, and I think they have their eye on the states. And, and that's the one that I was referring to earlier, which is actually funded by the IFC. Is it? Yeah, uh, cool car. Um, question from the audience about whether the World Bank is going to address the carbon impacts of its legacy projects, and uh, mentions uh, another question from the audience and talks about the World Bank and the IMF having a black eye from some of their past projects and mentioning uh, life and debt about uh, some of the conditions. So what can you do to sort of um, address the, the, you know, you invest in large capital projects that have 30, 50-year lifespans. Can you sort of undo or, or, or uh, some of the things that have been been done in the past? Uh, we're open for business on rehabilitation. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, for example, uh, we have a major um, uh, project um, in India that is on rehabilitating coal plants, and not necessarily ones that we had financed. But uh, we know that um, uh, as a lot of people focus on the new things, um, actually um, uh, investing in rehabilitation, investing in energy efficiency is going to be a very important part of both meeting the energy challenges but doing this in a way that, that brings down both local pollution, which is also a very important um, for, for many countries which have severe health problems because of, of local pollution. So it's part of the, part of the strategy. Um, uh, there's a growing interest in this, and so we're absolutely ready to do that. All this talk about um, climate change, some people are concerned that climate is overshadowing other important environmental issues such as biodiversity. And, and how do you, you weigh that? Because climate has quickly jumped to the top of the priority list, and some people who have been working on biodiversity for a long time said, wait a minute, ecosystem services, you know, this is getting pushed to the side, and we're creating uh, other problems down the road. You know, I, I actually see it from reverse. I, I, I know that those are the concerns, but if you look at the piece of the climate puzzle that we haven't talked about today, which is one on resilience, adaptation, as well as the, the nexus between forests and agriculture, both in terms of mitigation but also in terms of providing more resilience, um, there is a very close um, connection between uh, valuing ecosystems, valuing the forest, um, putting in place more sustainable um, agricultural um, practices, and building resilience and mitigating um, greenhouse gases, um, which are significant. So if we start thinking about um, using what has, I think, been a very interesting practice of payments for environmental services, valuing of ecosystems, uh, that's what the, the um, uh, reductions in, uh, of emissions from, from deforestation and degradation, the red concept, is all about, um, trying to build incentives for um, preserving um, uh, forest environment and doing that in a way that brings um, real streams of revenue and benefits to poor people, giving them incentives to keep those ecosystems alive. We're, we think that's going to be a very important part of whatever the solution that comes out of Copenhagen. We would like to see it um, extended to agriculture as well, because if you think about the poverty links, uh, there are hundreds of millions of people that are still dependent on small holdings in um, uh, very disconnected rural areas of, of Africa, of other places. If they can get incentives through some type of, of mechanisms to value the, the, the carbon sequestration ability, you can get a flow of, of finance to some of the poorest communities of the world, getting um, a climate impact, getting a poverty alleviation impact, and um, if we do it correctly, helping keep them um, away from the more environmentally sensitive areas. So I don't think it's a contradiction. It's working on both things together. Do you think those capital flows will actually stay and benefit those local communities? Well, it's really important to design it well. Um, one of the, the, the big issues in, in um, those of us that are, are trying to model what um, a program would look like um, to um, mix um, financing and, uh, and keeping um, forests from um, deforestation is to make sure that there isn't um, capture of those rents, there's not capture of those flows to, um, to either corrupt interests, 
to um, commercial interests and the like. If you don't get those um, flows to the people that are affected, whose livelihoods depend on the forests, we've actually um, done a major disservice. And so that is and a very important part of, of the design um, piece is bringing the voices in, particularly of indigenous peoples, who are often um, the last um, to, to benefit, but whose buy-in and who um, have the knowledge on the protection of the forest is going to be critical to bring in. Kathy Sierra is Vice President of Sustainable Development at the World Bank Group. Also with us today at the Commonwealth Club Climate One is Avais Khan, lead in the clean tech venture capital practice at KPMG. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk about carbon markets. We have a question from the audience about healthy, stable, global carbon markets and do they impacts on job, uh, job creation and economies. And then also, let's, we talk about carbon markets. We need to talk about offsets also. So how well are the markets functioning, and, and are they helping uh, put the price on carbon that, that you think we need? Well, I think um, two, a few points. Um, first, uh, it's going to be very important in our view and our assessment to have a vibrant carbon market as part of, of the broad solution. And we know that many of the, the debates here in the United States um, are on um, the size and, and design of a carbon market. In Europe, they have the European trading um, system. Uh, there's the, the, the mechanism that's sponsored by the United Nations, the Clean Development ne Mechanism, which provides offset um, um, so that developing countries can get some of the flow of funds. Now, to date, it's still at a very nascent um, stage. Um, it's a project-by-project project, uh, type of methodologies. Um, the price, because the, the, the broad um, targets are not yet uh, as rigorous as they might be if we wanted to, to get to the 2%. Um, goal, um, uh, so the price is not at the level yet to make switching of some of these new technologies. Um, if we have a deeper market, and that will require having um, of, uh, the kinds of targets that are, are going to really get us to a, a lower carbon future, um, if those markets are eventually connected to each other, they'll probably not start connected, but we, if they um, are built in ways that you can find connectivity, if um, countries um, build um, into their legislation some provisions for offsets, then you will be able to see flows of funds going to where the cheapest, um, uh, to where it's cheapest to actually reduce the carbon. In many cases, that's going to be developing countries. So that'll help solve the flows of funds that are needed to provide the incentives to get cleaner energy. Um, it'll help um, uh, push technologies to um, to areas where we want to get them accelerated. So that raises the, the offset question, which is sort of the, the pollution created in developing uh, developed countries can be most efficiently be offset somewhere else. Now, environmental justice advocates say, wait a minute, uh, you know, that we're being uh, victimized here, uh, that someone else some, in another part of the world, another country, is, is receiving benefits uh, from this. And that's creating some, some real waves within the environmental community about that kind of, you know, the whole notion of offsets and, and the benefits. So let's address that. Well, you know, if you just look at the math, um, if tomorrow uh, you were able to so suddenly turn off all the emissions from, from the developed world, uh, you would still um, have growth of emissions that would unfortunately take us beyond 2, two to 3 percent. So um, it's going to be quite imperative. 2 to 3 degrees. Uh, 2 yeah. degree degrees, excuse me, not percent. Yeah. I wish it was only percent. Yeah. 2 to 3 degrees. Um, and uh, so you, you will have to see if we want to have a global solution that there is um, finance and technology transfers to developing countries. So that's a good thing. We, we need to have that if we want a global solution. It's not going to be good enough to only have reductions in the developed world. We need to have this globally. Developing countries will say we need the finance. So that's where the carbon finance um, comes in. I think that um, the, the, the goal should be to, to both have incentives to have reductions in, in energy use in um, the OECD countries, and, you're, and uh, many are doing that, but to build in an offset program so you also have those incentives going to developing countries. If you don't um, have those kind of flows, I think that it's going to be very difficult to get the global goal. And are offsets the only way that money can flow from rich to poor countries? No, there's other ways. Um, there are um, specialized funds. Um, for example, we are, um, have a prototype fund, um, something called the Clean Technology Fund, where uh, countries are, are, have put in almost grant-like funding, about $5 billion, that we're using to blend with our own resources to bring down the costs. But frankly, it's going to be very difficult in the long run to have major amounts of funding coming from um, the public sector and so that has to be married with some type of market approach. 
Do you see offsets as generating private flows? Yeah, I mean, um, I, w I would like to take a step back and, and say that the clean de development mechanism has, has, has been good uh, so far, but I think that sometimes it can be very long and cumbersome for some of the early, uh, early stage companies, and it, it can not only take a long time, but it can get very expensive too. Um, it, it has set forth a, a good way of, of setting offsets, but I think you know after the Copenhagen conference, I think that uh, we will probably end up with a better, better method, a faster method for getting some of the new technologies and and some of the newer companies deployed in the developing world. Um, I, I mean, we know of one company um, who is trying to replace all the kerosene lamps that are being used. Uh, in places like India and Pakistan, and they have moved their operations from here to 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 those regions. Um, and what they're trying to do is to to use those offsets to buy their carbon credits, and so that they can trade that as as their business model. Uh, but it's just been taken so long to to get the approval process and all of that that it's just uh, turned out very cumbersome for them. Yeah. Another question from the audience: Does the World Bank invest in nuclear power projects in the developing world? No. <laughs> no, um, we we um, looked at this um, more than a decade ago when uh, we started entering into the former Soviet Union, and felt that we didn't really have the comparative advantage. Uh, we didn't have the skill set to deal with the complications, and so we have not um, financed nuclear power, and we don't plan to. So there's a revival of nuclear, or at least getting a second look, even by some environmentalists. Uh, I was just going to say, you probably don't need any more political headaches, too. <laughs> <laughs> big dams and big nuclear. Um, question from the audience. Does the World Bank support cap and trade or a more traditional tax, like gas tax, carbon tax? Do you have a, actually an institutional view on the policy mechanisms for putting a price on carbon? Well, of course, uh, um, you can look at this from, from the purely economic um, point of view. Uh, most economists will say that the, the most efficient way to get this is to put a tax on. But if you look at, at the political pragmatic point of view and as well as what we think through an offset market would be able to provide the, the uh, uh, efficient way of getting flows of funds to the developing world, um, we believe that kind of market-based solutions based on the cap-and-trade system will probably get us there. So that's why we've been very active in the carbon trading market. We have over $2 billion of, of uh, pr programs um, under implementation. This is money that is um, uh, providing purchases for either countries that, that need to purchase um, uh, um, carbon credits, companies um, which want to purchase carbon credits, or those that want to invest in forestry and the like. So we believe that a market-based solution is probably going to be the best way to go. We've invested heavily in it. Another question from the audience is, what is the interaction between the World Bank and the U administration in terms of enacting cap-and-trade policy? So are you going to be involved in implementation? Well, uh, we um, are working with um, basically many countries to try to um, show what can work best in developing countries to be the, the, the practical um, implementers. Uh, it's for countries to decide, um, based on, on where they are in their own legislation, what is the right methodology, what's the right mix of policy instruments. Um, so we, we try not to engage at, at that level in terms of the specific legislation. What we are saying is that if you want to go into an offset route, um, these are the kind of methodologies that can work, um, that you can have, uh, that you can trust. Here are some examples. Here is how these have worked in, um, in middle-income countries, in China, in India, and the like. Here's what you might need to do if you want to take that to the poorest countries. In Africa, for example, working on, on um, agriculture and reforestation issues. Here's what it might look like in, in the kind of regime you, you might need to put in place if you want to include forests as part of, of your scheme. So we call ourselves um, sort of the blue-collar workers of the climate change regime. Um, it's for the governments, um, both in their own um, uh, countries, but also as part of the international negotiations to decide, does any of this make sense? Which is the way that we can get the, the best action um, going forward? A lot of people in the U.S. have a hard time getting their head around and fully understanding trading something abs as abstract as carbon emissions. I'm just trying to think about what, the, you know, uh, we have a lot of people, very sophisticated mm -hmm. economy, who don't really understand this and are having trouble figuring it out. Imagine <laughs> what this is going to be like implementing this in yeah. developing countries. It sounds like it's could be extremely complex, problematic, and here potentially litigious. So yeah. do we know what we're getting ourselves into? 
Well, I think we, we already see a, quite a bit of a track record in terms of the energy sector in developing countries where, um, uh, yes, the, the, the UN um, processes are cumbersome, the, the clean development mechanism, but they're helping us practice so sort of on tricycles um, what it will take to help develop um, the kinds of, of monitoring and um, verification that would be needed to ensure that a wind farm is actually reducing and is operating so that you can rely on the carbon credit that's been purchased and you can have a continuous um, uh, verification of that. So it's happening already. It's happening in wind, it's happening in geothermal, it's happening on energy efficiency, and so those methodologies are, are fairly well known. Um, what is the big challenge is how to scale it up. And I think that's where um, I think is, is sort of the next uh, phase of this work. If it's, it's very expensive, it's very time-consuming, it's um, very difficult if you want to do project by project, wind farm by wind farm. Uh, if you're thinking about you know, uh, major countries that have to put multiple um, programs into place, you need to find a way to go a programmatic approach, to find um, ways to aggregate this up and make it att uh, attractive both to those countries and companies, but also to the investors who want to be able to, to spread their risks around and to buy something at an aggregated level. That's the next phase. So, it's, yes, it's complicated, but it's doable. Doable. You mentioned, uh, Avais mentioned micro-hydro before. I'd like to talk about microfinance, something that's, that's quite interesting. Uh, and obviously you deal, is there a role for microfinance and energy efficiency and climate change in the developing world? Well, I think we are seeing um, effects of that in countries like Bangladesh. Um, so the Grameen Bank, uh, which was a leader in microfinance, um, it has its own subsidiaries now uh, called Grameen Shakti, which is, uh, which, is, uh, which is the energy side of the equation. Um, and they tie in microfinance uh, to enable people to put uh, solar uh, PV panels on their roofs. And, and they have a goal of, of, of installing a million of them in the next uh, five to ten years. Uh, so I think the, they have come up with a very good innovative financial model to, to, to somehow combine microfinance and, and energy deployment together. And I think it, has a, it, it can have a substantial impact not only in the South Asian region but also in, in, in countries like Africa and, and some of the other poor countries where microfinance is, is being considered as a really good way to eradicate poverty. Let me just add to that, absolutely. I just visited um, this year a, a project, a microfinance project in, in India, and um, I expected to learn a lot about women's empowerment and the, many of the things that are associated with microfinance, and I did. But then when you looked at um, what the women were doing with the finance, they'd moved beyond just um, finding benefits for their own household. They'd actually started merging at the community level to get clean water and to make this as um, energy efficient as possible. So that indeed, they were using their microfinance opportunities to um, go solar in their small water schemes. Um, they were using um, what they hoped to be an eventual uh, ability to get um, finance. Um, they got microfinance to build more sustainable agriculture. And in the middle of a very, very poor village in a very, very poor region of India, um, the question that I was asked by the woman um, leader of this group was, can I please get some carbon credits for this? And so um, the women there, very sophisticated, illiterate, um, uh, poor, not schooled, were asking me about carbon credits. So that is where the world is going. Very interesting. Uh, let's bring it uh, closer to home. Uh, I read recently that the World Bank actually issued some green bonds, and the state of California purchased uh, some of these bonds, which I, took me a minute to think, wait, California is buying. First of all, if you got money out of the state of California, congratulations. <laughs> uh, hope you uh, made sure the check didn't bounce. But uh, uh, can you tell us how that works and, and, and whether that might scale more? This was the second issuance that we've done. What we, we're seeing that there's a class of investors, whether they're pension funds, um, companies that would like to have assets on their books um, that are socially responsible, are very interested in investing in um, things that do good, but that also have a very good return. Okay? So the World Bank um, issues its bonds. We are a AAA-rated um, uh, um, organization. One of the so few left, can, maybe? Yeah, yeah. So we are, are, can give very attractive rates to our investors, and what we've done is we've packaged those investments that we are making in either green technologies or um, adaptation, 
on the climate change nexus and using the funds that we're getting from these bonds to finance those projects. So we can assure the investors, in, in this instance, the first one was a Swedish ish issuance, and the second one was the one that was purchased for $300 million by the state of, of California, that those um, funds that they are supporting through the bond purchase will go towards green investments. And that helps them in terms of, of your bottom line, and giving you a very good return for your investment, but also gives you assurance that you have on your balance sheet something that um, can to say that California is investing in the future of the world. Interesting. Base anything to add on, on green bonds? I, I think it's a, it's a great instrument. I think for the first time we're seeing that, that investors want to invest in, in, in things that not only do good, but also give very good financial returns. I think there was a gap within that several years ago. I mean, usually uh, the, the, the financial instruments that used to do good were not that economically viable. But I think now, because of the, the new technologies that are available, or the new places you can invest your money, I think there is, uh, you, you have a good nexus of, of, of those both things. And that's what is attractive to investors. That's all the time we have. Aves Khan is the lead in the clean tech of venture capital practice at KPMG. We've also been discussing the World Bank with Kathy Sierra, Vice President of Sustainable Development at the World Bank. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Flounder, founder of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club, and now this meeting is adjourned. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.